When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Writing to Get Business podcast, where you'll get tips to expand your writing skills. Every week, you'll hear tips and strategies to support your writing. Pat Iyer is your show hostess, a ghostwriter, editor, and author who has written 48 books. Sit back, relax, and listen. Here's your hostess, Pat Iyer. Hello, this is Pat Iyer with Writing to Get Business, and I have the pleasure of bringing to you Regina Bergman, who I have met through a joint venture inner circle group that we are both a part of. Regina is one of those individuals who's had a lot of life experiences and business experiences that all add up to having much to share. Regina, welcome to the show. Thank you, Pat. It's a pleasure to be here. Been looking forward to this. Describe to our listener, if somebody said, Regina, what do you do? What's your business? How would you answer that? Well, currently, my business is that I am an acceleration, uh, or excuse me, said that backwards, a profit acceleration specialist and exit strategy specialist. So I help business owners to create more profit in their business so that they get to take home more. And in, and in that process, we're alleviating stress, improving relationships, and building a foundation that they can sell their business when they're ready to go on to their next adventure. You know, that reminds me of a man who we talked to several years ago when I was getting ready to sell my company. And he said, I know what we're going to do. We're going to put one of our executives in your company, and he's going to help you ramp up your revenues and you'll pay him oh, $250,000 a year. And if it doesn't work up that he ramps it up for you, well, it'll be great because it'll be a fine ride. And I thought, no, <laughs> I don't think that's such a great concept. I wasn't paying myself $250,000 yeah. a year, and I wasn't going to pay him that much either. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's crazy. <laughs> You know, there, there's thing, there are things that we can do as we're building our business that create that foundation that makes it a marketable asset, something that somebody else wants to buy. And it's all about how we build it. And, and yes, you can come in and, and over a year or two period make a, a big difference in the value of a company, but it's really a longer track record than that, that that buyer is looking for. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, while it might be considered a Hail Mary, you know, I'm not sure that it's going to do everything you want it to do to bring someone in that way. And certainly positioning your company for sale and thinking about all of those numbers was an eye-opening experience for me. It forced me to look at things like um, what percentage of our customers were new every year versus returning what were our profit margins? What were the areas of our business that were the most profitable 
Where were we losing money? Where were we spending too much money? Uh, how many people were in our database? There was a lot of data collection. We went through a business broker who guided mm -hmm. us through, this is what you need to create the prospectus. This is how you should write it. And then he did the preliminary screening of the prospects and brought us mm -hmm. only those people where it was going to be worthwhile for us to speak with them. And you were so very fortunate. You know, 95% of the calls that a business broker take or that, you know, that they receive 95% of those people, they have to turn away because they don't have a saleable asset. They didn't build their business mm. in such a way that there's a market for it. And so you were extremely fortunate to, to be able to do that. Yes, it, it took some foresight. It took some deliberate thinking, and it also yes. took about three years of trying to sell the company ourselves to right. people who were not qualified prospects, but we didn't realize they weren't qualified at the time we first started speaking with them. Right. So you are certainly in today's economy with and today's demographics with so many baby boomers who own companies now thinking what's the next step, you're very right. well positioned to help people go through what can be a very painful process of realizing right. I grew my baby and now I have to turn my baby over to someone else, or is my baby even worth any money? Exactly. And, you know, I went through that in the, the financial crash of 2008. Uh, I had a staffing firm, a regional staffing firm. We had six offices We'd been in business for about 12 and a half years and we went under and we were doing about $5 million a year in business. Mm. And we went under by March of 09. There was simply no market for our business. And at the time I didn't know how to pivot as we talk about today with the, with all of the, the COVID issues that we have and the businesses that have struggled during COVID. And, and I literally was, didn't have anybody to sell it to. You know, I had all my systems and things in place. We had a, we had a, what I would consider a good business. And um, it just, we were out of business overnight. And that was because the companies simply stopped hiring. They were yes. restricted. We actually called all of our clients. One of my division heads and I, we called all of our clients and all of the prospects we were working with. And every one of them said, we're not doing anything for six to nine months until we find out what's happening in this economy. Well, I had a staff of 25 people. I had six offices. We had about 200 people placed with our clients. And those were going to be the first people to go with those clients. They were going to keep the people on their payroll and let my people go, of course. And so there was no way I could continue to support 25 people on payroll with no money coming in. Mm -hmm. So I, and the, and the way we were structured, there wasn't any way at that time. Now today it would be different and I'll come back to that in a moment, but there wasn't any way at that time to service all the areas that we were serving because we were geographically spread out. As I said, we had six offices, five were in Texas. One was in Oklahoma. Today we'd have been able to take that business online, mm -hmm. but 2008, 2009, we weren't quite there. We had done some online uh, experimentation with doing a remote office, 
but we just weren't in a place and our clients weren't in a place to really deal with the remote aspects yet. Today, it would have been different if, if that were the situation today. I think we could have survived. But in 2008, 2009, it didn't work out. I remember that era because I started, well, I was running my company then, and I started doing teleseminars for legal nurse consultants with instant teleseminar and then switched over to go to meeting. Zoom was not even a thought yeah, right. at that time. You know, now it, it's hard to believe because it's so ubiquitous. Yeah. <laughs> But no, the technology, the online thinking and the, and the online technology was primitive and probably confined to some of the larger companies might have been using WebEx or the equivalent more geared towards right. a corporate audience. I can remember thinking or hearing at that time about how Facebook, that employers were going to be able to start using Facebook. And I thought, how is that going to happen? You know, I mean, it was, it was still a fairly new thing. And, and I remember, I remember being confused about, Hmm, I wonder how they're going to do that and make that work. What's that look like? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. and now of course, you know, we all use Facebook. Well, let's focus on your books. Okay. We're talking today. And now we're going to pivot away from the business topics. Your first book had nothing to do with business. Tell me how that book came about. Well, it's kind of an interesting story, I think. So I've always felt there was a book inside of me, but I thought it was fiction. I'm not a fiction writer. It's not fiction. (laughs) But I um, have a, a passion for marriage and for families and to see them succeed and create generational success. And a a very dear friend of mine was sharing a story about a dear friend of hers who on her, I think it was her 42nd wedding anniversary, her husband came in and said, oh, by the way, we're getting a divorce. And she was floored. She had no idea their marriage was in that kind of trouble. So my friend said to me, I guess there's no such thing as a bulletproof marriage. Mm. And I went wait a minute, (laughs) there has to be things that we can do to ensure the longevity of our marriage and and the continuation of our marriages. And so that started the research project. And the the book that that eventually came out of that is called Bulletproof Your Marriage. And um, I interviewed couples around the world that I knew who had successful marriages. And I say around the world, because at the time, uh, this was before I started my coaching business, uh, I had a bed and breakfast that I was running. And I also had um, a blog, I had a a craft business running outside out of my bed and breakfast. And so I had contacts around the world with other folks that that uh, were in that realm, and had come to know several of them and, and that their relationships were good with their spouses and, and then other people that I'd known for years. So I interviewed uh, a variety of couples around the world about, um, I had a, a specific interview for them and, and then we went through asking every couple the same questions. And so that plus my own experiences formed the foundation for the book. And it's really a lot about communication 
because that is the, the real thing that gets in our way is communication. Mm-hmm. And it was shocking. Some of the statistics that I came across and, and honestly, it's, you know, I published the book in February of 2016, started writing it in 2014. So I don't remember the exact number at the moment, but the percentage of couples that divorce in those um, empty nest years is high. It's so high. And it's, I I believe it was over 50%, something of that nature. It was a huge number. I was totally shocked, but it was because they didn't nurture the marriage during that time that they were raising the children. Mm-hmm. So they had grown so far apart by the time the children left home that they had nothing to hang on to and they just went their separate ways. And it just, uh, you know, there are just so many spaces within the stages of a marriage. I talk about five stages in the book and there's so many of so many times in those stages of that, of your marriage that it can fail and communication is one of the biggest factors all the way through. So a lot of the book is about communication Mm-hmm. How we nurture our marriage with that. I'm assuming that in the process of interviewing these successful marriages, that you identified factors that led to successful marriages or helped to prevent yes. them breaking apart. And you cover yes. that in the book? We do. We do indeed. Yes. And so, yeah, we talked. Um, I should have looked up my list of questions before we hopped on here, but we do, we talk about um, things that worked and things that didn't work. What caused the biggest strife in your marriage? What caused, you know, what, what did you do to protect it? What, what counsel do you have for other people uh, of things that have worked in your marriage that you would share with others? And so I had a list of about, I'm thinking it was about 21 questions that we Mm -hmm. went through that I went through with each couple. And that was a, a great experience just going through that with each of those couples. And I actually, um, I don't know if you can see behind me, there's a poster there and it's um, called 42 ways to keep the love alive. And those are 42 things that came from those interviews of things that people did in their marriage to keep the love alive. Because let's face it, you know, those couples that divorce after the children have left home, they didn't keep the love alive. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, there's, there's so many things that we can do to bulletproof our marriage. It doesn't have to become a statistic of failure. Did you use the names of the people you interviewed? I believe I used a few first names, mm-hmm. uh, but for the most part, no, I didn't, uh, didn't, didn't, uh, give their names. No. Yeah. It's a question that comes up when you interview people for a book uh, or you tell a memoir. I was having a conversation not long ago with a woman who wants to hire me to ghostwrite her book. And we were discussing, should she use her family names? Should she talk about the city where she grew up? She felt that many of her stories would be recognizable if somebody in her city read that book. But if she told her story as if she grew up in a different city, then it would be easier for her to maintain some confidentiality. Right, right. Yeah. And so there's really nothing in there in the book that would give away that confidentiality. Um, Yeah, don't believe there is. So and I know one couple, they 
when it came out, they immediately went out. They have a large family. They have uh, five or seven children. I can't remember the, the number. It's at least five. It might be seven. And then they have countless grandchildren <laughs> and great grands now. And anyway, so they bought a copy of the book for every member of their family. Nice. They felt it was great counsel and they, they mm-hmm. bought a copy for every one of their children and, and uh, grandchildren. <laughs> so, Very sweet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And I have typically given it to, um, in our, in our church, we have, um, missionaries mm-hmm. who serve full-time missions and, uh, they are usually young people. And I have given every time there's been, uh, missionaries in our area and we've gotten to know them. I always send them when they leave, they leave with a copy of the book, a signed copy of the book. <laughs> I say, now you can't read it until you get home. Uh-huh. <laughs> And they say, I'm reading it on the plane. <laughs> I said, that's okay, but not until you finish your mission. This is not something that you need to be concerned about at the moment, but I want you to be armed with this information before you go home or when you get home, when you start dating. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because it does start with before the marriage. It actually starts with before the marriage. Yes. Yeah. Let's switch to the other book that okay. you are now finishing up. Yes. Tell us about that one. So this one is a labor of love also, and it is actually something, um, hopefully your, your listeners will uh, relate to this, but it's something I was called to do. And it's a book on grief and helping people prepare for grief and understand grief, be able to get through it better themselves, as well as help others get through it. And it came about as a result of my husband passing away. So in 2014, my husband of 44 years passed away. And um, sometime after that, I've been working on this book way too long, but I knew that I was to write that book and I knew what the title of it was to be. And um, I conducted about 70 interviews and I say conducted, I'll qualify that a bit. I started off conducting the interviews with people who had lost a spouse and or a child. And I quickly realized as I was doing the interviews that each interview would send me back into the widow's fog of grief. And I describe that widow's fog in the book and what that means, but it's, it's just this cloud that comes over you, preventing you from being able to think clearly and to, to function properly. And each, so each time that I worked with someone who was sharing their story of grief with me, and I would tell them, I said, look, at the end of this call, one or both of us is going to be crying. And it was usually me for sure. And oftentimes them. And so I realized I couldn't keep doing that, that it was just too taxing to constantly be in going back into that grief state myself. So I created a form online and, and they came in and they filled out the form, which really was helpful when I actually got down to writing the book, because instead mm-hmm. of listening, you know, taking, going from my notes, I had their answers right in front of me. And so, um, but it, yeah, there's so many people that are grieving, they're hurting and they don't know how to get through it. They don't know. Um, you know, I mean, when you're in that grief place, I don't know if you've ever experienced a huge loss that way, 
Pat, and I say huge, you know, we can't compare losses. Uh, each loss is unique to the individual. And, and we often don't understand what someone's going through unless we've been through it ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that was one of my first realizations in the grief process was, gee, you thought you knew what people were experiencing when they'd lost a spouse, but you had no idea. That's <laughs> what I had to tell myself. And, and I've always been a person who felt that happiness was a choice. And I still believe that and still do believe that. But there was a period of time when I was in that widow's fog that I couldn't find it. I still believed it, but I couldn't find the happiness. I constantly was searching for it. And I remember clearly the day that the fog lifted enough for me to be able to feel that happiness again. Mm -hmm. And so, but that's, that's, I, I was called to do that, to write that book for the, for the benefit of those who are grieving or trying to help someone who is grieving. And are you planning to independently publish that book or to have it done by a major publisher? I am actually going to independently publish it. Um, and I have partnered with a grief coach, uh, an end of life coach, mm -hmm. who uh, we have come together to create a platform to help folks. So she has a course for caregivers. And then my book, of course, is on both sides of the aisle, both the griever and the caregiver. And um, so we've come together, we've created a Facebook group together, and we are creating a platform, a membership platform, where we'll be able to provide resources to folks uh, to, uh, to help them through the process. Hmm. One of the things that we focus on in these podcasts is how you take a book and you expand that, how it opens up new doors of opportunities. And it sounds like you've got that door open and you're starting to walk through it, thinking about how you can reach more people, help more people, right? bring them knowledge that they need at a time exactly. that's very difficult for them. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, that's why I partnered with Lee. We, I knew that I wasn't going to create a course, or at least not at this point in my life, uh, because this is more my philanthropic work. The grief part is not, it's not my business. It's, it's my passion, but it's more philanthropic for me. And so I knew that I wasn't going to be taking the time at this point in my life to create other materials and a course and, and kind of things. Although I do have some articles and some things that I can share and worksheets and things of that, and, and journals, a gratitude journal. Um, so anyway, when I met Lee and we and found out what she did, and we got to talking about her course, it just seemed the right fit. I have another friend that I've partnered with, um, and and you know her, um, Barbara Ellison, and Barb and I are putting on a, a grief summit uh, later this year, and we're actually going to do it twice a year. We're going to do it just before the holidays to help people get through the holidays. And so we're inviting a lot of folks in this it, that work in the grief arena to share knowledge. We're going to have some workshops, just help people get through the process uh, so that they aren't thrown back into that grief just because the holidays are there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father died on Christmas Day, oh, six weeks God. after he was diagnosed with cancer. And I remember for, first of all, I remember it felt like we were hit by a truck. Right. 
there was no time to prepare. All of a sudden we were faced with this horrible reality. And then for several years afterwards on Christmas, we went through yeah. the reminders and the reliving experiences. It took many years for Christmas to assume a pleasant connotation again. I'm sure it did. I am sure it did. You know, you remind me of one of the things that my daughter and her children did is my husband was a huge fan of peanut M&Ms <laughs> and mm. people started buying him M&M dispensers years ago. And he had this huge collection of M&M dispensers. And so one of the things that they did was every year at Christmas, they would put something on their Christmas tree about M&Ms. So there might be packages of M&Ms hanging off their tree or something that reminded them of Papa uh, at Christmas time and help them with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't imagine losing someone like that on Christmas day. I mean, it's just, yeah, that has a long-term he, impact. Yeah. Well, you know, in one way it shaped my life because he was 56 when he died. Oh my! I was 27, a mm-hmm. mother of a six-year-old boy and a one-year-old boy. And my father always believed or, or lived his life that he was always living in the future. He was always postponing his happiness for someday. Uh, someday after he, his parents died, then he would start dating again because my parents right. got divorced after 25 years of marriage. Mm. And I looked at that message and I said, you don't have someday, Pat. You have now. Yeah. Enjoy life now. Don't enjoy life in the future. Yeah. It was an important lesson for me to learn at that point in my life. Absolutely. And, you know, the other thing to be a little spiritual for a minute or so before we wrap this up was that, that we were all of his four children were grieving simultaneously, of course, and, you know, and just trying to come to grips with the fact that we had lost our father. And within the same week, every one of us had a dream in which my father came to us and said, don't grieve for me. I am happy. I am settled. I'm fine. Yeah. We started comparing notes. Did you have that? Wasn't a dream, right? (laughs) Holy cow. And then it yeah. and then it, it took away some of the pain that we were yeah. all going through. And I, I can't explain it. I know that up to that one moment I thought of heaven as being this theoretical thing, but what are the odds that four people could have the same dream in the same yeah. week? That's not a dream. A yeah. little bit strange. He 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 gave you the message. My husband gave me a message as well at one point. And so I, I fully understand that and get that and, mm. and the power of that kind of a message. Mm. Yeah. yeah. How did you get your message? Oh, so I actually was standing in my kitchen and um, felt my husband's presence and heard him say, <laughs> I'm going to get emotional. Um heard him say it's time to open your heart to love again and I would not be remarried today if he had not done that wow and I I actually before his before he left I I physically felt um, a hug from him 
And it was the most amazing and powerful experience probably of my life. <laughs> yeah. Well, now we have moved ourselves to tears. <laughs> we have moved our listener to tears, maybe. Woo. Yeah. Wow, Carol, first. What a powerful story, Regina. Uh, thank you. I, you want to hear the funny part of it? <laughs> <laughs> now that I stopped crying. Now that we stopped crying, yeah. The funny part is I was, I was devastated, actually, when he told me that because I had no intention of remarrying. And um, I said, okay, if that's what you and the Lord want me to do, you have to bring this man to my doorstep <laughs> because I am not going to go looking for somebody and get the wrong person. Mm -hmm. And they literally brought him to my doorstep. <laughs> and, and we've been married for five years now. So um, yeah, miracles happen. Miracles happen. And our, our loved ones are very aware of us, extremely aware of us. They mm -hmm. love us. They want the best for us. They're watching out for us from the other side. Well, on that note, Regina, <laughs> we're going to finish this discussion. I know that the stories that you've shared about your first book and your second book, which is no doubt going to be released at the time that this aired will be of interest to our listener. How can they find out more about you, about your books, about your services? Awesome. Okay. So uh, about my services, um, I do have a website, uh, Regina. <laughs> Sorry. I'm still, <laughs> oh, let me regroup here. My website is bridgeportismarketing.com. And that's actually my membership site for, for folks who, who buy my membership services. It is an online business university, but you can find out a lot about what I do on the front end of that. And I can be reached through my email, regina at bridgeportstrategy.com. Or you can find me on LinkedIn or Facebook, uh, Regina Bergman. And um, I'm still working on um, an author page. I don't have an author page up yet. That, that'll be coming soon where we'll have more or speaker slash author page where we'll have all the books up there and, and opportunities to engage me for speaking events, those kinds of things. And would you give the titles of your two books that we've been talking about today? Sure. The first one is Bulletproof Your Marriage. And it's by Regina Partain because I was not remarried yet. And Partain is uh, P-A-R-T-A-I-N. And so I now am using uh, Regina Partain Bergman for those folks who knew me as Partain and mm -hmm. those folks who know me as Bergman. Uh, so that's the, the first one, Bulletproof Your Marriage. And the second one, the one that's coming out is How to Mourn with Those That Mourn, A Guide to Understanding and Preparing for uh, Grief because we know we're all going to experience it or know someone who's experiencing it. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Regina, for sharing, for inspiring us with your stories, for touching us, for making us cry. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I've never cried on my podcast before. And it feels Today's a little a first. <laughs> Yeah, a little. It's the first. And... <laughs> 
gives me the chills, makes the <laughs> hair on my arm stand up too. I hear you. I understand. It's been a pleasure being here, Pat. Thank you so much for this it's opportunity. Been it's been great. And for you who is listening to this podcast on our audio channels or watching it on our YouTube channel, please be sure to leave a comment below. Give us a rating on the audio platform that you're using and tell somebody else about writing to get business podcast. Thanks so much. This is Pat Iyer with writing to get business. This is Chris Cheatham West, who is the author of a book on digital marketing. We've just finished his podcast. Chris, what would you tell our viewer or our listener? What we covered in your podcast? Yeah, sure. So we covered so much. One thing we covered is why I wrote the book, Digital Market for Results, How to Focus on What Matters. Another thing we covered is what to look for with an online strategy, where you want to spend your time, where you want to spend your money, and how can you be diverse when it comes to spreading your message online and the risk of focusing on one channel or platform. We also talked about how to promote your book after you write it, because you don't want to just write a book and have it sitting there. You want to get it out to the world. And I share strategies on how to do that online, offline, which led to me having more credibility, more authority, and more clients in the long run whenever I would speak at conferences. And not only that, but we also talked about how to write the book and get it done. So I look forward to you listening to it and connecting with us online. Chris shared a tip about how he drives people to his website, which is unique. You definitely want to hear his show. That tip is a life changer. Be sure to catch Chris Cheatham West and his podcast on Writing to Get Business. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for writers at writingtogetbusiness.com. That is W-R-I-T-I-N-G-T-O-G-E-T-B-U-S-I-N-E-S-S dot com. Coaches, consultants, and entrepreneurs work with Pat so they can get more business by writing and sharing their expertise. Check out Pat's resources on writingtogetbusiness.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.